Happy Friday, guys, and welcome to another episode of Let's Talk Dubs. I'm your host, Bill T, and we have made it two years into the podcast, episode 100 here today. That's right, man, episode 100, and we got plenty more episodes to go, so if you guys have listened all the way from the beginning until now, you've listened to over 100 hours of me yapping about Volkswagens, and I hope you guys appreciate it because I really enjoy doing this, and you can show your appreciation by supporting the podcast. Go to letstalkdubs.com. Go to the store, pick out some merch, and support your favorite Volkswagen podcast. Also, if you guys have show topics, people, and things like that you want to chat to me about, or even just write me a message or whatever, we may read them on the podcast. Feel free to send me an email, bill at letstalkdubs.com, bill at letstalkdubs.com. So let's get into listener email. Alex Gobbler sends us an email and says, hello, after more than 20 years of expressing gentle, respectful interest in her car, Mrs. Hansen sold me her 73 Super Beetle a few months ago. She's the original of the car in its original condition, except that she had it repainted the same color once a long time ago. Now that it's mine, I cannot believe how many smiles the car gets. I feel like a movie star whenever I drive my shiny green beetle down the road. My question for you and and everyone is this. I've heard that there's lots of VW people who feel that Super Beetle isn't the real deal. One guy across the street from me said that the Super has too many creature comforts to be cool in the eyes of the standardists. Well, I don't want to have made this 20-year journey only to find out that my car isn't cool enough for some folks. I love my little green beetle, and I'll never let it go. Please tell me. I have thick skin. Is the super cool? I love your podcast. Thanks for making me feel like part of your team. Alex. Alex, thanks for the email, and I wanted to address a couple things here. First, if you love this car, man, who cares what people think? Second, don't ever get into a hobby for other people. You know, if, if you, if you've loved this car from afar, afar from all, for all these years, just fix the car up the way you want it. Now, do you want it to be accepted by the masses? Well, that's a different deal because the VW people are a little bit particular when it comes to certain things. Uh, everybody likes a pre 67 and earlier for the most part out here in Las Vegas, mostly because they're pre smog. Uh, we don't have to smog out be 67 and earlier, and everybody likes them because the wide five, the blade bumpers, and all this stuff. Now, me personally, I like everything. And I think if you want to make your Super Beetle really cool and you really want to enjoy it, technologically, it's the most advanced Beetle that, that was built. Okay. The McPherson strut front end, um, rack and pinion steering. I mean, it's really a nice machine. I would say venture down the avenue of the German look. German look is a performance late model European style beetle that has a real cool look to it. Um, I would definitely spend a little time going down that road and taking a look at some of those things. And you will definitely be a standout in a group of people that all look the same because a lot of people have pre 67 cars and they're more concerned with their car fitting into a particular category. I like the German look. I think the German look is super cool. It it oozes performance, and I'm just a performance kind of guy. So um, I'd take a look down that road. But by all means, man, don't let other people get you down. The VW scene, they can be a little particular at times. And the most important thing about the scene is it's about the people. And if the people are cool, man, nothing else matters. Um, you can definitely get some help. Uh, on your ride by, you know, finding a local club nearby or getting involved and finding out where guys are meeting, things to that extent. But by all means, man, if you love your car, love your car, man. Don't let anybody take it away from you. Look for inspiration into making what your car is cool. Um, 
I definitely am a big uh, proponent of supporting people and what they think is cool and not trashing other people's ideas. Unfortunately, we live in a, in a different age now where people have a, uh, a desire to express their unsolicited opinion. But you do you, buddy. And if the car is clean, solid, and it's a good, you know, good condition, and it's a, it's a great starting platform, Super Beetles can be made to be some of the coolest looking Beetles, in my opinion. Some people argue that, but you know what? The hobby is for the people. It's the Volkswagen. It's the people's car. And this hobby and these cars are for just about every type of individual. And that's why I love the hobby so much. There's a broad spectrum of owners, and they're as unique as the car. So don't set yourself up for disappointment wanting other people to like your car. You like your car. You do you. And you move down that path, Alex. Uh, hopefully you send me some pictures of this car and uh, maybe we'll get to, we'll share it on one of the live streams. So thanks for the email. If you guys want to send in an email, bill at letstalkdubs.com, shoot me an email and we'll get an answer on the podcast in the beginning. So a new segment will be starting up here and I got a few emails to get caught up on. So now on to today's episode, Eric Geisert is a self-taught photojournalist and photographer. He's lived in, he's grown up mostly in Southern California. Uh, he started out working for VW Trends for a few years. Shortly after being at VW Trends, he moved on to Street Rider magazine in 1991. Uh, in 2000, he was named one of the 50 who made a difference at the 50th Detroit Autorama show. And in 2004, he was named editor of Kit Car magazine. Um, 2006, moved back to Street Rider and became senior editor. Uh, and in 2007, he was inducted into the Circle of Champions at the Detroit Autoramas Hall of Fame. Um, Eric's been in the automotive world for quite a while. He's done a substantial amount when it comes to photography and being involved on the publishing side, the magazine side of things. And we get uh, we have a really good podcast and talk a lot about you know the difference in the you know uh, the VW industry versus the street rod industry and kind of how the magazines. You know, the difference in the magazines and, and, and more about, you know, how the hobby, you know, does the hobby influence the magazine? Does the magazine influence the hobby and things to that extent? So it's a great conversation. And Eric's been a guy that's been around for a long time. If some of you guys, I was going through an earlier VW Trans and the first type three day was an article covered by Eric Geisert. And so I read that article a while back and it was just cool to see that, you know, his roots are VW. He still has VWs. He's got probably, I think he's got about 12 cars in his collection and there are VWs in his collection. So diehard VW guy, you know, grew up with uh, Bill Schwimmer and, you know, early, early, uh, early nineties, late eighties, hanging out with all the guys at VW trans and working closely with Dan Ledbetter and stuff. Who's been on the podcast. So, uh, it's a great podcast. I really enjoyed it. It's a long one. It's a good one. And without any further ado, guys, let's get into it this week, man, with Eric Geyser on Let's Talk Dubs. A Volkswagen is a nice station wagon to have around the house. The 1974 Volkswagen, covered by VW Motor Security Blanket. Hey everybody, so on today's show, I've been pretty excited, this is our 100th episode, so it's kind of a big deal, and for our 100th episode, I wanted to make sure that we brought on someone that's had not just an impact in the VW scene, but an impact in our 
our visual experience as to how we've perceived those images that set us forward on this path to this hobby that we're involved with. And so on today's podcast, I've got Eric Geisert, and he's a photojournalist, self-taught, started at the bottom like a lot of us VW guys, and his, his story is long and varied, and I wanted to welcome to the podcast. Eric, welcome to the podcast today. Dale, thank you very much for having me. Uh, where I wanted to start this, and normally we start with your VW story, but what I think is maybe more important because of VWs are such a such an iconic California culture and a lot of everything you're involved with is is tied in with that culture, most importantly with photography and how photography is taking you on this journey to cross-reference all this. I almost want to start at the beginning with your with your photography kind of in that Southern California culture and, and where that all begins. Well, yeah, I, I, I grew up in Southern California. I was originally from Ohio, but I've been in California since 62. So I always consider myself a Californian. And growing up in Orange County in Southern California, uh, there were a lot of lifestyles that it was just a part of not knowing that it was a lifestyle. It was just, you know, the thing that everybody was doing. Sure. And uh, as a in high school, uh, I had to have an English elective, and they said, well, do you want to work on a newspaper or the yearbook? And I said, well, yearbook, I guess. And they said, can you take a picture? And they said, no. Well, here's a camera. Learn how to take a picture. So I started doing um, uh, high school football and learned how to photograph things very, very fast. But there were a lot of things that were happening in that general time frame that I just turned my camera on, which was a lot of some BMX and uh, the first wave, I shouldn't say first wave, the, the first big wave of skateboarding that happened with the skate parks. And uh, uh, all my friends were doing that and we all kind of hung out and all had kind of the same concepts on on all this stuff. And, and some of the first stuff that you start photographing, right? So you, so you start taking photographs of high school football, some action stuff. So you start to learn a little bit of that stuff. And, and at this time, it, it, you're growing up, are you, are you a jock, a skater, a BMXer? Like where, cause you know, I think we all, everybody kind of fell into a classification back then of like what you were into. Oh, I, I, I would imagine. I mean, I thought I was going to be a, uh, an architect and <laughs> my friend, I was taking classes for that in school. And I thought that was the direction things were going to happen. But I'd also been really impressed with, certain photography uh matthew brady's civil war photography was always uh, a big influence on me because it, it it captured time and it captured a moment and it and it's the only thing that does and i i was really intrigued with with, with photography and uh the whole thing with the uh, yearbook and and like my drafting teacher was the first guy to sell me a a, a, a photo a, a camera so uh, everything, everything just kind of, kind of fell together at the time. I, I thought, uh, I, I seriously thought when I was going to leave uh, uh, high school, I might go work for Playboy. Right. And uh, although a lot of people kind of think they wish they could do that, I actually worked on it and uh, got. I eventually got published in Playboy, and I met Hefner, and I showed him my portfolio, and um, uh, he liked the blonde. <laughs> uh, right. <laughs> that was um, that was uh, in my book at the time. And uh, I, I thought that was the direction that I was going to go. But um, uh, in hand in hand with that, there was a huge car scene happening uh, in Southern California, mm -hmm. uh, several of them. 
and uh, uh, VWs was one of them. And one of my, uh, some of my friends, like I said, we were all kind of into the same thing. We also kind of started with mini trucks and, uh, and then somebody got a Volkswagen and we all started doing the Volkswagen thing and, and just hanging out. But the, but the, but the culture, there were so many things happening at the same time. Uh, uh, the bug-ins were the original bug-ins at OCIR mm-hmm. were happening. You know, they, they had started in 68 and I didn't start going until, uh, probably 1980 or so. But for the last four or five of the of the buggins, the original buggins that happened, I was either first or fifth through the line to, to get in. Right. And, and we all went down the night before and, and we all hung out in our cars and slept in our cars at this uh, to, to get in. And so it was all, everybody was doing kind of the same thing. But, the, but my my friends that were doing this, I mean, like I say, uh, they're, they're fairly well known in, in the industry because. Uh, we all rode BMX together. Sure. And so the guys that started uh, DKP3, Decliner Panzers, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Bill Schwimmer, uh, Glenn Gasky, those guys I rode BMX with when we were like 14 and 15 years old. So, uh, the, in fact, there was a track. Well, we made a track uh, out of a dirt lot, and that particular track ended up being the YMCA track in – uh, the city of Orange, and it, it just closed a couple of years ago. I mean, it ran for 40 years as a BMX track, and we used to race there before the, there was a track. So, um, so let yeah. me let, let me ask this. So, and I kind of want to, and and I want to see from the standpoint of like you starting to take photography and realizing like this is something that you're really into because sometimes it starts as like, like a chore. And then at some point you realize like, this is really truly a passion. And there's so many different facets to photography, whether it's like photographing a static vehicle and trying to get that image to come to life or photographing live action movement and trying to get it to stay still like skateboarders at a bowl or whatever. And so that's what was so fun about photography is because you can get a hundred, a hundred photographers in a room and they all do something different. Right. And, and so, uh, I've been lucky to have been, I I mean, I, I dabble in a few, in a few different genres, but, uh, as soon as I discovered hockey W's magazine, all I ever wanted to be was RK Smith. (laughs) Yeah. Right. And so, so now there's but the, but there, the funny thing is RK when he first started in publishing if you want to call it that he was sweeping floors for Tom McMullen uh at uh, for Street Rider magazine and I ended up you know decades later working for Street Rider magazine so it was the it was the weirdest uh, you know coincidences uh between um uh me and RK but uh, you know I, I I count him as a, a friend when I see him but uh all I ever, in fact, there's a there's a particular uh, uh, cover for VW Trends magazine uh, that I had shot that I was ecstatic about because I thought that I had created the perfect R.K. Smith photograph right. because that's all I ever wanted to be. <laughs> and so did you. So did you look to guys like R.K. for like input and you know because sometimes sometimes when you maybe chase your idols into into a genre or a workspace there all of a sudden i talked to a guy who builds engines and he came to the state started building engines and all of a sudden the guys that he was super chummy with all of a sudden started getting like hey man you're you're kind of over here getting in our world you know no no it wasn't like that i mean there was a there was certainly a competition between the trends and hoppy w's 
uh, a competitive thing. Uh, I'm sure they didn't particularly, uh, you know, give a damn about VW Trans. They didn't. Th- I'm sure they didn't think much of it. But, um, but uh, you know, we always kind of competed for the cars and things, and we 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 tried to do our thing. But you know, VW Trans and Hot VWs had um, two different um, uh, two different readerships, I think. Yeah, two two different styles. But before we get too deep into that, because you you're going to bug ins and all this kind of stuff. What's your first Volkswagen and what pushes you to get a Volkswagen versus the versus other types of cars? Or was a Volkswagen your first car? No, uh, actually, uh, there's a, uh, a mini truck, a 69 Datsun mini truck was my first car. And uh, I beat the hell out of the uh, tailgate and filled it full of Bondo and cut all the uh, the hooks off the side and, and, you know, shaved it and lowered it and. Um, you know, put the, um, uh, aluminum wheels on it and stuff and just tried to customize it. And, and a few of us were doing that. Uh, one of the other, the VW guys that I was talking about, uh, started with, uh, mini trucks, Glenn Gasky. Uh-huh. And, and he had a, uh, he had a, uh, crew cab, uh, Datsun that was, had an, uh, uh, aluminum V6 motor and an art car three speed trans and he ran it on propane. Oh, wow. It was totally different, and uh, but but Glenn was a Glenn was a huge influence on me uh, because he had the, he had the eye he had the he could make cars sit right and look right, and that was a uh, it was it was unique, yeah. And and so uh, went and then some of my friends that were in my drafting class, uh, a guy named Ace. Uh, and an animal who was the uh, animal was the uh, guy who. Uh, ran the photo staff for the yearbook. Uh, Animal had a '59 uh, a sedan, and uh, Ace ended up with like about a '64 sedan, I think it was. Yeah. And and my first VW after that uh, Datsun pickup truck was a '69 um, uh, fastback, Type Three fastback. So your first VW was your first VW is a fastback. Right. And 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 going to the uh, you know Type Three days in the early Soto days. Um, you know, with RK again, uh, putting on the, uh, the type three days, that was just another, uh, weird little coincidence of, of, you know, rubbing shoulders with somebody that I'd always looked up to. Well, and that was one of the things what, where, where I kept seeing your name, like when I was down back in the, in the late eighties of the hot VWs magazine, I was seeing your name in there and I saw, it it wouldn't have been in hot VWs. I mean, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, VW trends. And I, and I saw the article for the first type three day that they had done at a park and it was, it was a write up and photographs by you. And it was, it was interesting because, you know, I, I like, I like all Volkswagens and I've got type threes, type twos, type ones, but, uh, you know, type threes have always gotten kind of, they were, they were always kind of a, the, the outcast. And for the type three people to have a type three day was, was kind of a, an up and coming, like they're coming on their own because as the type threes started to kind of get shoehorned into the cow look. You know, it was for the guys that were doing things a little different. You know, well, one of the one of the most well known uh, Type Threes ever uh, uh, was built by Bill Schwimmer. Right. Like I mentioned, Schwimmer uh, was lived around the corner from me when I lived in Orange, uh, by about I don't know about twenty five houses away, and and we both lived uh, uh, one street away from Otto Haas Orange. Uh, oh, wow. which, which is where everybody everybody went, where Gasky worked, where Freddie DeSoto worked, uh, Greg Britton, Dave Mason, uh, all these guys that ended up creating the DKP3 
uh, we all hung out there. I mean, that was the place, uh, you know, Dave Griner owned the place, but uh, we all hung out there and some, uh, some of them worked there. So when Bill built the Pepto squareback, the, the, uh, the pink squareback, uh, that really uh, changed the way people looked at type threes, I think. No, I mean, most definitely because once the type threes broke the barrier and started getting into the cow look thing, I mean, for all intents and purposes, they're a much nicer driving and riding Volkswagen than the, than the type one. Cause it's, it's a lot more roomy. You got room for, you know, most importantly in the, in the, in the eighties and stuff is like your speakers and all that stuff, because you know, it was all part of the, it was all part of the deal. I mean, it, it's so crazy because from BMX to music to, to uh, car audio, to to custom cars, and to hot rod. I mean, like, like it all converges in that in that same space. Well, it's funny you should mention ride because in the early days, uh, ride wasn't important. Just the look was important. Right, absolutely. So, some of my some of my Carmen Gias that I've owned, I, I think there was like one bar in the top tube and about three bars on the bottom. And, and I mean, that's how we lowered them. So there wasn't, it wasn't a concern if it rode like a brick because it looked freaking cool. <laughs> well, I think the, I think the thing with the type threes is you had room for like a square, square back was like, I think the thing with, for me, the first car I fell in love with when I picked up a magazine was a square back. And it was because it was like a surf wagon. And then you had room for subwoofers and stuff in the back of that thing. And I was like, man, that's perfect. This is what I want to get. Now, ultimately, I never ended up getting a square back until years later. My first car was a was a Volkswagen just because the Beetle was so cheap. I bought a Beetle for like 200 bucks. It was already lowered and everything. And it was like for 200 bucks, all of a sudden, now I'm now I'm as cool as the mini truck guys that just spent seven, eight thousand bucks on a mini truck. Well, the, the, when I bought my Fastback, um, I wanted to do some performance things, and I ended up getting uh, a pair of uh, 42 DCNFs, some Bird Specials from, from Gene Bird. Right. And, and, but the odd, funny, weird thing about that is that uh, I went to high school with the Birds, with, with uh, Clyde and Doug, and uh, Gary was ahead of me, but I was in the same class as, uh, as Doug. And I remember going to drafting class, which was right next door to the wood shop, which is right next to the metal shop at our high school. And uh, Clyde would be out there. Doug would be out there working on their Carmen Gias, you know, on the grass in front of the classroom, yeah. doing doing welding or whatever. So it was it was like anybody else would go, oh, you know, having access to the birds in the 70s and, and listening to what they had to say about performance motors it was a natural thing sure. because you know they lived only a you know a mile away so so that was, had some influence on decisions you made as, as far as performance and all that kind of stuff and things you thought were cool and i think you you eventually end up you know kind of leaning more towards obviously the cow look side with the dkp kind of vibe and that stuff um What's your after your after your so does your fastback get finished and that's your cruiser or do you bail on the fastback and get a beetle or what's your what's your car history? Ah, uh, geez, um, I don't know the entire line. I've had <laughs> lots and lots of cars. I mean, a, a couple of years ago, I I still had seven <clears throat> seventeen cars and right now I'm down to twelve. So <laughs> I, I, I've always had a lot of cars and 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 always. I never really bought them to sell them. I always tried to tried to keep most of them. Right. Um, there's a photograph I sent you of of me leaning on a white Carmen Gia with a polished MP5. I see that. Yeah. That's that's when I was working for uh, uh, Street Rotter, but I was parked in Tom McMullen's parking spot, 
And that car got hit by a, a drunk driver in the headlights so hard that it snapped the passenger rear wheel. Oh, wow. But, and that's the wheel that's on the other photograph where I used as a hose wrap at my house. But I, I had, I had a long, I, I, you know, VW buses and, and, uh, uh, Type, a lot of type threes. I didn't own a lot of those. I didn't own any buses. I've never owned a bus, but I had splits and ovals and, and lots of sedans and lots of Gias. So, um, and there now, was a whole, the whole succession of those. And so now talking into, you start off kind of almost simultaneously, right? With, uh, with automotive passion and then you're doing the photography. How do you take that and get into being like a photojournalist, like getting into that world. What's your, what's your plan to do that? Well, or there, that there, there, it's, there's never been a plan. That's the funny part. I was working two jobs. I was, do, I, I would uh, wake up in the morning and go to work in Tustin and I was drilling cast iron bathtubs with diamond bits for jacuzzis. Right. And it was a, just a horrible job sitting in a cast iron bathtub while you're trying to drill through it. And, uh, I did that during the day and then I go home and I had a 65 convertible bug, which is the black one that I sent you some pictures of. Yeah. And I used to throw, uh, the LA times, uh, on a morning route from about three in the morning or two in the morning till about six and to 300 homes in, in orange County and then go home, sleep for an hour, get up and then go drill bath, uh, bathtubs again. And, there was a Seven Eleven that was around, uh, around the corner from where I was doing the work with the uh, bathtubs, and they had uh, went go over there and get a snack or a hot dog or whatever it was, and they had a, a magazine rack and they had BW Trends on on the rack and I remember seeing there was a it's uh, it was August of '85 I think it was BW Trends uh, had Bridget Reed on the cover with a, a giveaway car that they were uh doing and the photograph itself was really dark and i thought holy crap i can do better than that <laughs> and and so uh like within a m month uh happened to be the uh johnny speed and chrome show that always happened up in buena park every year yeah and, and i thought i'll go i'll go find somebody from vw trends and, and tell them they should hire me and so I did, and I ran into Dan Ledbetter there. That's, I met Dan at the show, and Dan didn't know what to say because he, you know, he wasn't he wasn't in charge. So he turned me on to Bob Clark, who was the editorial director for the magazine. And uh, I went in and showed him my portfolio and showed him some of the work I'd done for the local newspapers and stuff. I'd covered. See the the uh, when I'd go to the Buggins, I'd see uh, I didn't know who they were at the time, but you know. Uh, uh, R.K. Smith and people like that right. uh, out, out on the drag strip and, you know, underneath the Christmas tree uh, doing the photography. And I couldn't get out there because I didn't have a pass. So I went to the local newspaper at, uh, that was published in Orange, which coincidentally happened to be the same newspaper as when I was a kid. Uh, I used to throw the, the that newspaper to homes on my bicycle. But I ended up uh, uh, getting a pass from them as long as I covered somebody from orange to in the article so i i went back got a press pass <laughs> so that i could go down on the line and do the photography that i wanted to do and uh, i ended up writing about the bug-in for this and which was my first published article oh nice so 
So I took that article and some of the photography that I had done and gave it to Bob Clark and said, I, I can do better photography than what you've got going on. And he believed me and hired me. So that's your first. So you go right from like working two jobs to then going on and being a, a, a photographer yep. for VW Trend. So now this is your hobby. It's your passion. And now you get to actually do this for a job. So is, is this a little bit surreal for you at this time? Yeah. Well, and 30 years later, it, it still is. It, it's the weird part that they pay me to do what it was that I was doing. I always thought was just a, a, a hysterical that, that somebody would pay somebody to do it because I was having so much fun. Oh, yeah. I mean, I was I was 25 years old dressed in a t-shirt and shorts climbing on planes to go to England to Santa Pod Raceway to do the very first VW drag racing that they ever had in the country. Oh, wow. Yeah. And, and you know, they have all these businessmen sitting on the plane and stuff. And I walk in, you know, with as some punk kid with no luggage <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 you know, sit on the plane and go to, go to England or go wherever. I was all over the U.S., and so you start working, so you're working for the magazine and doing photography and getting all these assignments, and now how does that change your relationship in respect to being one of the guys in the hobby? Does that change anything in regards to how your friends see you or people that don't know you all of a sudden like, oh yeah, that guy's a jerk, he works for VW Trans, or oh, let's butter him up because he works for VW Trans? Does it have any effect in your social circle? No, um, I think my friends have always treated me pretty rough. <laughs> right. Well, that's how you know they, that they like you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but um, no, uh, I, I don't. I don't. Uh, later on, I mean, I, I, I never even wore anything that that identified who I worked for because I liked being kind of low key about it, and um, you know, talking to somebody about their car without them knowing that I worked for a magazine was a lot easier to talk to them. Uh, uh, than for them, for me to come up and say, Hey, you know, I'm from this magazine or this magazine and, and, uh, which would change the conversation I, I felt. Right. More so, organic. Yeah. True. And, yeah. and then getting into like your connection with the DKP guys, did that have any influence with like them wanting their cars? Like, Hey man, Eric's working for trends. So if your car's gonna get featured, feature it in trends or, is there no, I got to, I got to photograph a few of their cars. Uh, I know uh, you know Schumer's car, the Pepto Squareback was in was in trends, and I had done that. And I took I took one of uh, uh, Ledbetter's ideas on on the name for it because he's had a he always had a uh, kind of a uh, a dark side to him, uh, along with being a real funny guy to begin right. with. Right. But um, but. One of the things was it was just he and I doing that magazine for a few years, and we had to use different names as pseudonyms uh, because we didn't want to make it look like you know every story. Just was two guys. So, so his name, his one of his alter names, was Drew Blood, <laughs> <laughs> and I thought that's so inventive. You know, he 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 always had a, he had a great sense of humor, and I I wrote under uh, I wrote tech stories under Richard Fredericks, which was my dad's name. Nice. And so, uh, so we would try to, uh, fill out the magazine with other people, which, which were really us, but, well, but, so but that's the, interesting. The, so that's interesting. So at the time, it, w was it because VW trends was a, a little bit more on a shoestring budget and not, didn't have as big a circulation? I mean, what was, what was the reason at that point that it got down to just the two of you guys? 
Well, somebody in management thought uh, they didn't want to see our, our, you know, every page have our name on it. They and but but true to form, they, it was uh, the policy of the company, McMullen Publishing at the time, to spread people incredibly thin and uh, you know get the absolute most work out of them. So they couldn't hire anybody. So we just changed our names and kept writing. <laughs> and now you're so you're at Trends for how long? Working at Trends for how long? Uh, only three years. I did uh, about eighty-five to eighty-eight. And then uh, I worked at uh, uh, the Auto Trader uh, for about three years, and then. Um, What's that like going from Trends to Auto Trader? Like you go from working with people that are super stoked to see you to going and meeting <laughs> a bunch of used car dealership guys. Like is that? Yeah. I mean, is that was that the yeah. transition? I, I, and I have absolutely no salesman in me. And I, <laughs> right. You're and, like, and I would go to the dealerships and, you know, they could have 40 cars ready. I mean, ideally have 40 cars there for me to take a picture of. And I'd walk in, I'd go, are you guys ready? And they go, no. I go, okay, I'll see you next week. You know, I wouldn't give a damn about it. Because <laughs> if I, I, I thought, geez, you know, if they couldn't, if they couldn't put the effort in, why should I? Right. So, um, so I, d- I did that for three years, but, so, um, so what makes you decide to leave trends? Why do you decide to leave trends? Hmm. I guess I thought that there was a chance to make uh, more money somewhere else. And you thought a tr- trader like, Hey, this is a big, I mean, tr- auto trader is pretty big, right? So well, no, I, I had a friend that worked at auto trader and he, he, he was actually, he was a, another VW guy and he, uh, uh, and we'd known each other ever since I met him when he was uh, folding uh, burritos at, at Taco Bell mm-hmm. across the street from my house. And so, uh, but he was, he ended up being a, a, a big wheel uh, with uh, uh, Auto Trader because he was really good at salesmanship. And uh, I thought, oh, okay, well, sure, I could um, I, I could do that too. And I can go around and take pictures of cars and know how to do that. So. So you so decide you decide to go on for like maybe I'll make a little bit more money, kind of step my life up a little bit, and leave leave VW Trends. Now, what was getting back to trends? What's what was the dynamic working there at VW Trends? I mean, it started out as like your first real job, essentially, like your first real job in the in something you were passionate about. Well, first time I ever had a salary, that's for sure. But um, but it was. It was, again, just because of the fact that somebody was paying me to do what I like to do, I didn't, I didn't treat it as such. But the dynamic of trends, uh, it wasn't particularly structured, really. It was, it, was a, it was a lot of fun. And I shared an office with Ledbetter, which was a lot of fun. And so, uh, in fact, if, you, if anybody uh, talks to Dan, they should ask him uh, to do his Bon Scott imitations from uh, the original singer from ACDC. Yeah. Because he does an absolutely hysterical Bon Scott imitation. Oh, nice, but but um, it was it was a it was a lot of fun. In fact, there's a photograph that I sent you that the the three guys in a in the black convertible. Yeah, that's you, that, Ledbetter, and who's the other guy? That's Robin Hartfield. He was the uh, editor of the magazine. Um, not not really a uh, you know Cal look VW kind of guy. He liked he liked uh, off road racing and such. Uh, uh, but. So that that that's in the time frame. That's probably nineteen eighty eight in that photograph. But the dynamics of working at Trends. So because because it's your first real job, but it's a job that you really enjoy, and you probably would have done it for probably maybe a less of a salary because you just love doing it. But well, that's true. At, at some point, it gets to the point where you make a decision to leave. Is it? 
is it maybe due to the lack of structure or is it just you're just thinking you know i'm getting a little i've been doing this a while i'd like to do something different yeah i just i I thought that there was an opportunity with auto trader and i thought i should take it and how long do you stay at auto trader for three years and then it's the same the same amount of time as trends and then after auto trader well, the funny thing, you know, again, how things how things work out, I, it wasn't anything that was planned. It was things that fall into my lap. So uh, I had a, uh, a girlfriend that was a stripper and she was working at a club. And uh, one of the guys that would come in and see her happened to be the editor of Street Rider magazine. And they ended up talking about one thing or another. And she says, oh, uh, because VW Trends and Street Rider magazine were owned by the same publishing company. So she says, oh, well, my boyfriend, you know, was, used to work at VW Trends and blah, blah, blah. So they ended up talking and unbeknownst to me, uh, the there was a spot that was probably going to be open on the Street Rider staff. And uh, the editor told her to tell me to give him a call. So I did in uh, 1991. And then I spent 30 years with um, Street Rider. And Street Rodder, that was like, that's the pinnacle of like Hot Rod magazines, right? Well, yeah, if, if somebody, uh, it, it, was, it was pretty much called the Bible of the industry for, for street rodding. Hot Rod magazine pretty much had the, uh, the top spot in terms of hot rodding in general. Mm-hmm. But by, by the 80s and certainly into the 90s, Hot Rod didn't, wasn't the same book as it was back in the 60s when it was in its heyday. And so, and it was a different publishing firm that, that put, uh, uh, hot rod out. But I so, think, I think from my perspective as a consumer, there's a distinct difference between hot rod magazine and street rodder magazine. Oh, sure. Like oh, st- sure. street rodder was more of like 32s and 44s and things like that. And the hot rod was well, more, I think like current contemporary, what the kids are doing today. Yeah. But all the way up until, um, Geez, uh, all the way up until then, I, I, I can't remember the date, but I, I it's got to be in the late 90s. It, uh, Street Rider was a pre-48. Uh, Correct, book. yeah. yeah it I was... mean, it's exclusively. So all that early style hot rodding, that's the only thing that we did. And now – What's your, t- cause you're, you're a guy with a lot of different car. F- I mean, you've got, you've got an eye for multiple different cars. Um, oh. what's your, do you get a hot rod before you started street rodder or after? Uh, after, because I, I got hired as a photographer. I didn't get uh, hired as a, somebody with a lot of knowledge and hot rodding. So I would go to a, a good guy show and sit on the curb at the entrance and as a car would come in, I'd try to guess what it was, what year it was, and what type of car it was. And then when it would drive by, I'd look at the license plate, and it would say 28 Model A, or it would say something on the license plate. And I'd, that's how I learned. Or uh, the other way was uh, they had tremendous archives. They started that magazine in 72, and they had boxes and boxes and boxes of previous issues. And one of the first articles that I created for their Street Rotter was uh, – called 20 years ago and the title comes from the uh the beatles song uh, 20 years ago sergeant pepper taught the band of me yeah but but i i purposely went back 20 years ago into the archives so that i could study it so i could understand the industry and so i would write that article about what was happening 20 years ago but in essence i was 
that was my textbook. That's how I went back and 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 looked at stuff to uh, figure out what was what was what, and who was who. And so doing that, starting in Street Rider magazine, it starts to open your eyes to different types of hot rods. You start to get like, oh, I wouldn't mind having one of those, or maybe I'll get a thirty-two. Or well, there isn't any better way to to learn about a car than to build one. So right. uh, one of the first cars. Uh, that I, I, I was really intrigued, and I still am, with the T-buckets. But uh, the T-bucket is kind of like the way t- type threes were back in the day. Sure. Uh, they, 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 at, at, in the 90s, um, you know, a lot of people were building these fad tees, which were kind of cartoony cars. And they didn't have the same impact, and they didn't have the same respect as a 32 or 29 or a 34. So... Uh, I thought that I was going to build a tea bucket and I ended up talking with, uh, uh, actually Pete Chaporis from SoCal speed shop mm-hmm. who passed away only a few years ago. But, but, uh, Pete said that, you know, a, a 29 on 32 frame is one of the most iconic hot rods ever. And as it was, I happened to be up in uh, outside of Reno one day and I, Took uh, in fact, some people may actually know about this. They there was a uh, a VW Bug that had been lifted up in the air and made into a spider. Yeah, a big spider, um, black one. Yeah, right. But do you know about that one up in Carson City? I think it's like in Dayton, Nevada, like just outside. I've seen it out there. Yeah, it's, when I've been up there. It's, it's actually in between Virginia City and Carson Carson City. Okay. And and I I drove past and I go, God, I gotta I gotta take a look at that or go get a picture of it so when i turned around i went down this one side street and when i turned around to go back up to the main street i saw that there were a bunch of old cars in this lot and i got out and stood up on the hood of the rental car and looked over the fence and this guy had probably 50 or 60 cars that were all very early uh uh fords you know from the 20s and the 30s in his in his lot well, I ended up, his name was Clyde Collins and, uh, he was a really nice guy and we had lots of conversations and I ended up buying a, a 29 Ford Roadster from him and, uh, through the magazine was able to build it and have some of the best names in the industry, uh, work on it and, and assemble it. It was, uh, it was, uh, had a low back chassis, uh, Barry low back chassis under it. Uh, it was, uh, uh, assembled by uh, Roy Brizio. It was painted by Daryl Hollenbeck. Wow. It had an interior from uh, Rich Santanas. And so it, uh, Budnick wheels on some of the, and the, and the cool part was, well, this is how everything's all intermixed. Um, uh, the first interview that I did for Street Rotter was with Sam Fuchs. And oh, really? uh, I went up to Santa Barbara to, uh, uh, to, uh, to interview him and and i didn't know how to interview anybody and, and sam was very nice he didn't throw me out of his shop but i could see in his eye that he knew that i didn't know what the hell i was talking about <laughs> but 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 he was very nice and at the end of the at the end of the article he says hey you know what you should meet my kid uh his name's chip and uh, he just graduated art center i'm all really and he, and he just got a job with uh, a hot rod shop and i said oh okay so i ended up meeting him and in the last two paragraphs of this article, uh, uh, it's Chip uh, talking about him and, and what he what he's doing and what he wants to do for a living. And, you know, uh, I ended up having Chip uh, draw my 29 Roadster. Uh, 
Oh, wow. Because, and that ended up being a um, 30-part uh, story or something uh, in Street Rotter Magazine, uh, 30 issues of articles of, oh, wow. of how to build it. So I, I, I learned a lot by building a, building a car and being along when uh, people were working on it and whatever. So that's an opportunity that you get through being in the magazines and, and being at Street Rider for such a long time, you know, and starting off getting to build that car. At what point in the magazines, now did Street Rider ever get purchased by a big conglomerate or is it always, is it still no, been? Well, yes, yes and no. Yes. Um, there were, the company was bought and sold and then that company bought and sold and back and forth all through uh, from about, the 2000 on uh, it went through several different owners in that process we ended up buying uh, uh peterson publishing which published hot rod and and a lot of other magazines but we, we the company that had bought us ended up buying them for 800 million dollars yikes that's, yeah that's, that's quite a, that's quite a bit of money and because it, during the it's i think it's probably Early two thousands, maybe a lot of magazine companies. Uh, I think there was like a, that one that bought trends was the Enthusiast Network. I think it was. They just kept buying up, uh, buying up brands or smaller brands. Well, would get some of some of it was just name changes because at one point, uh, at one point we were owned by K three, and K three their their logo uh, was a K and then three capital I's. And the president of the company was introduced at like SEMA or somewhere uh, as the president of Kill Communications, which he didn't, he didn't like. So the next day he said, we need to change the name of our company. And that's where Prime Media came in. But uh, K3, uh, that was the, that company had God's money. Really? Uh, yeah, it was uh, Kravitz, Kravitz, Kohlberg and Roberts and Kravitz. He owned American Express. Oh. So the the money involved was astonishing. Yeah. And so but, but they had they didn't really have an interest in, in, in the companies as far as I was concerned. They they were uh uh just wanted to go out and buy companies and trade them and flip them and 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 uh cut them cut them way down, make them uh, as right. lean as possible. Bare bones, maximize right. the profit, and then flip them. Right. So, so a lot of that was happening uh, uh, with Hot Rod. Hot Rod was uh, bought by a, a syndicate out of uh, Chicago, which sold it to a company in England, EMAP, uh, for I think it was one point two billion, and then uh, we ended up buying it for uh, eight hundred million. So that's how the company, that's how our company, under the same umbrella, had both Hot Rod and Street Rodder at one for many years. And then at some point, and I don't know, is this where, because you're involved in, in Street Rotter, where is the, at what point and what's the trigger that has them start going later than 48 vehicles? Well, we had a couple of different magazines through the years. Uh, one of them was uh, uh, Custom Rotter, and Custom Rotter actually addressed that crowd. It was uh, 48 to about 64. So anything that was in there, a lot of the old customs and, and a lot of the new stuff. I, mean, I, I have some custom rotters because I had a 65 Riviera and yeah. I and I could never find a magazine that uh, <laughs> that catered to me. And I, and I bought every issue of custom rotter that had a Riviera in it. 
Well, Customer Otter uh, had it, had its own identity and its own editors, and and I mean, I I did work for them too, and did a lot of covers for them. Uh, but um, the one of the deals was that some of the editors that were there were um, more interested in the traditional custom spelled with a K rather than custom uh, that was. You see, uh, what a lot of people don't know is that in order for a magazine to survive, uh, there are a couple different ways to do that through advertisers and through uh, readership. Sure. And if you hone in on something that doesn't have a lot of uh, readership or certainly doesn't have a lot of manufacturers supplying that niche, uh, then the magazine won't grow. And uh, a few of us wanted to see Custom Rotter kind of move into like a Street Rotter style magazine, except for later vehicles. And some of the people wanted to keep it uh, traditional, uh, old school style. So yeah, and I think and I think you can be so old school. You like it's great for you and all your rockabilly buddies, but there's there's only one company that makes Bellflowers, one company yeah. making Supremes, and exactly. when when they don't have a, a competitor, and they're the only they're, they're the only place to go to, they don't really need to advertise in your magazine, right? You know, right. so so things so things die off. But when we ended up buying uh, uh, Peterson Publishing, uh, one of the magazines that came along with it was Rod and Custom which is iconic uh, for, for custom rods. Yeah. So there wasn't really a need for, uh, for custom rodder. So there, there was a lot of movement and a lot of uh, consolidation. And, and so like that. And at this time in the market, you're, you know, it's, it's interesting to watch everything kind of change because as you have your hot rod market, you've got your things that are, that are a set way in the hot rod market in the VW market, everything is set with its own way. And what I mean by that is like in the hot rod market, it's more about uh, everybody's doing a three, a three fifty Chevy and a Ford, a 700 R4 trans, some whatever X brand of wheels they're all getting. However different. And some guys are doing flames or whatever. And then you go into like the custom rider market where it's like Supremes, Bellflowers, whatever you're going to have in that. And then the VW market, you know, you've got your, same five manufacturers making everything over there. And so the, the limitations of the hobby to some degree get limited. And, and and it's interesting because every one of those segments has their cult following, right? Well, like, like you were saying earlier about the type threes, uh, how they came up uh, because the same thing happened in the street rod market for, for a lot of years, it was 32 Ford Roadsters or 34 coupes. Uh, or, or, and, and, you know, if you go into model a, then that was even, you know, a, a little strange just because it wasn't a 32. But uh, there was a time where uh, people didn't want to uh, even look at a 37 Ford or 40 Ford. And 40s, 40s or 40, the uh, 46, 48 era, those cars uh, made great hot rods, but they, they, they weren't really addressed very well. But one of the guys, uh, the... Um, one of the most famous editors working at uh, Hot Rod, uh, Gray Baskerville, uh, kind of pointed out that uh, with one of the magazine covers, uh, a dare to be different. And it changed the industry to the point that uh, you look at something that somebody doesn't have, and then that becomes cool. Right. So all of, all of a sudden, 37 Fords or 
or bullet nose Studebakers or the Phantom cars, the cars that were never made, like uh, uh, two door Woodies. You know that 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 wasn't something that Ford or, uh, had ever made, but there were people out there making them and and making them look cool. So all of a sudden, in the '90s, our magazine grew. We had we put we did a 360 page magazine every four weeks. Wow. And and what people don't get about that is, and especially people in the industry, I'd say I'd talk to them and I go, hey, you know, do you do a catalog? And they go, yeah. And I go, how big is it? I go, oh well, it's a 60 page catalog. I go, oh, that's pretty big. Uh, how often do you do it? Well, we try to get one done every year. I go, great, a 60 page book. Okay, we do 360 pages. We do it in four weeks, and then at the end of that four weeks, we do another. <laughs> we do another one, but we make it look totally different. So that's what we did. That was the production level that we were at. And in the heyday for Street Rotter in the in the 90s, I mean, we'd have 10 car features. We had four events. We had six tech stories in each issue. Yeah. So it was, it was massive. And I mean, well, you guys, they're, they're in, in that arena, there's no shortage of advertisers, I would assume. I mean, and those guys, give me the difference between like, if from your perspective, and I don't know if you work with them much, but like people that advertise, so they both have shops that support the hobby, the VW scene and the street rod scene. What's the difference in the advertisers between the two? Well. From your perspective. From my perspective, I mean, I understood from, uh, from experience that when they advertised in street rider, their phone rang. They knew when the new magazine came out without even looking because the phone would start start ringing. Right. So so uh, that that kind of uh, relationship was really important for me personally. I didn't particularly care if they advertised or not because I wanted the book to look cool. I wanted to have the cool cars and the, and whatever the tech stories that we were going to write about uh, would be what everybody would want. Right. And it kind of, it kind of goes back to the sixties heyday of hot rod magazine where they covered a lot of cool stuff and, you know, people wanted to read about it. That's why they picked up the magazine. They didn't pick it up because of the advertisers. They picked it up because it was supposed to be cool. Sure. Sure. And, and, and there was always a, a, I mean, we used to call them the, you know, the, the dark side. It was the, the people that were involved in the marketing side. Yeah. yeah. The marketing advertising guys. Uh, we always tried to, to, to push out of everything because they always took it over and they always screwed it up. So, um, you know, they, they try to make it uh, salable somehow, you know, any idea that we came up with, we thought, Oh, let's, let's do a cruise. Well, you know, we could have them go past a bunch of advertisers shops. No, 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 no. We, we want to do a cruise. <laughs> right. So, you know, it was always, it was always a fight uh, be- between the two. And and if you put out something cool, then somebody's going to want to advertise in it. And if you have your ad in there, then people are going to call you because you have your ad in there. Now, was there no? But, it, but was there a noticeable difference between like suppliers on the VW side and street rod side? Because it seems, from my experience, that the VW the VW suppliers seem to be slow to understand how to get. They somehow think that people are going to buy their stuff no matter what. Well, I'm you know not sure. I mean, but, I mean in, that, in that time frame, you had kind of the heyday, again, of, of the VW aftermarket with uh, Johnny's and Carcraft and small car specialties. 
I mean, they were uh, CB Performance. All those guys, they they were they were huge in, in that in that market. So um, you know, finding four or six page advertisements in the magazine wasn't uncommon. Yeah, and and uh, yeah, that, that's back when you'd open the magazine, like you're saying, you're you're having three, four, five pages per magazine. And then when do you is there is there a timing throughout the industry? where everything starts to slow down shortly after that or because it, it seems like street rod always stayed super strong well it, it did for it, it did up until um well see yeah advertising and uh, uh company managements and things um when uh when street rotter street rotter uh uh was discontinued uh last year uh after a run of nearly 50 years. Wow. Um, but it was part of a group of 19 magazines that got axed in one day uh, from our company. We had 21 magazines, and the next day, 19 of them were gone. And, and Street Rotter was one of them. It was it, Holy the, company cow. That, the company that ended up with us is Discovery, the Discovery Channel. Uh-huh. And, and they had zero interest in publications. They were only interested in the digital production of, of images and their TV shows, and which is fine because they make they they make thousands times the amount of money on, on their TV shows than they would for a magazine. It's unfortunate because there are a lot of people out there that like to get magazines sent to them in the mail and you know open it up. And, and so did the, did, now, Discovery did they buy Motor Trend? Is that Motor Trend TV? Is that who that is now? Yes. Yes. And then well, that that it's that whole group. There's some interaction in there that I might not uh, totally understand on, on who owns what. Now is but that is that who owned? Not. Who's the company that they purchased that that um, that? Ten. Oh, so they purchased ten. And 10, 10 was Prime Media at one time or no? Oh, yeah, yeah, a long time ago. It went from um, McMullen Publishing to McMullen and E Publishing to, uh, oh, I, I don't know some of the uh, some of the other little names that were in there. Uh, I'd, I'd have to research it, but Prime Media was one of them. K3 was one of them. Um, it ended up being the Enthusiast Network, which is the abbreviation is ten T E N. Yeah, and and then when when VW Trends gets the axe, are you still involved with people? Oh mean- no, I, I was I was I was long gone when when I was still at Trends. We were trying to introduce water cooled uh, because we were hardcore air cooled book, right? But the advertising wanted to expand and sure. wanted to have something else to tap into to, to get money for. And so uh, if we had uh, water-cooled advertisers, we should probably have uh, water-cooled cars. So uh, some of that stuff slowly was starting to get in when I left. But, um, you know, that as far as I was concerned, I, I, I still to this day just don't believe that Volkswagen really – um, made cars after 1967. That's that's always been my my uh, my theory. Uh, even though I I drive a a 2016 Tiguan, <laughs> right? And but my question is, I know you were gone from trends at the time, but what I'm saying is your connection through Street Rotter on a personal level, because you, I think you've always maintained some Volkswagens around the house somewhere, and oh, sure. had friends in the scene. Did you know, or were you in any way, uh, was the company you worked for? A, part of 10 when they or prime media when they cut when they axed v-dub trends and it was just kind of a shock to everybody or it was like low mountain totem pole gets gets pulled 
Yeah, it was it was kind of the beginning of the end on some of the magazines. But there, we at one time, I'm trying to remember. I think we had 40 magazines or something. So uh, one falling in and out one way or the other because uh, when we bought Peterson, VW and Porsche was the. I mean, they had VW Porsche at one time. I don't know if they were still around as VW, VW and Porsche as uh, when we bought the company. So uh, trends changed personalities uh, in to the 90s, and I didn't really identify with it so so much. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it was great to uh, run across people that I knew from the industry and, and uh, that type of thing, but. Uh, as as a magazine with a particular identity, I didn't uh, identify with it mm-hmm. because it had changed so much. Sure, sure. And so you see, like, obviously you're connected in the world of publications and also the VWC, and you see the end of trends, and then you're in the magazine world, but are you on another planet because you're with Street Rodder and they're just and they're just – puking money because they've got so many advertisers and these are i mean these hot rod shops that manufacture stuff you know the steering columns and and front suspension and all that stuff i mean these guys do big business compared to vw oh true yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah it, the, the industry is 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 a lot larger i mean uh i mean look at edelbrock uh right you know th- those kind of companies it's it's uh astonishing the amount of money that uh flowed through those companies and uh the VW aftermarket uh, was uh, a lot, lot, lot smaller. Yeah, it's it seems that it's always been challenged with, uh, you know, getting and, and some of the companies because and and I and I've always equated it to. It's interesting because in the hot rod world, you see guys that were in different industries that come into the hot rod world because of a hobby that they've got business acumen and they start a company and it's wildly successful. And in the VW scene, it's always the end user who starts a company because maybe he doesn't want to pay for it. Nobody makes it or whatever the case is. Then he makes something, manufactures something, and then it turns into a business, but they seem to never reach a critical mass where it's like where it becomes big enough to service the scene. Like if a guy comes out and comes up, let's say with the latest, greatest front suspension for Volkswagen, they're never able to produce it for enough to keep up with the company because you always hear about, oh, you know, these guys are behind on supplying this or the quality's not great or whatever it needs to be. But I think I've always looked at it that you see that in the aftermarket that because of the dynamics of the people that get into the hobby, you know, street riders are kind of the grown, like the grown man stuff when the VW stuff was kids. And now that us VW guys are getting up to where we're all now in our 40s and 50s and whatnot, as far as the guys that were into this as teenagers and now as we're, we're getting older, you're seeing a lot more money be put into Volkswagens to bring them up to yep. a whole nother level. Just like you see with, you know, when the T buckets went away and the 32 Fords got big and then, you know, the pro touring cars or, you know, you, you see that. Let me, let, let me tell you how I, how I view it. Cause they, ha- it's, it's sort of like that to, to, as far as I see it. Uh-huh. But what it, what it is, is whoever you are, whatever car that was cool when you were in high school, uh, that the one that you wanted that you couldn't afford. Right. That, that when you got a little bit older and, and had a little extra money to, and you went out and bought it, that's the same story with the guys that were uh, in high school in the 1930s 
And when they got into the 1950s and had some disposable money, they went back and bought the car they always wanted. For me, uh, I've got a I've got a 65 notchback. I've got a 59 Carmen Ghia. I've got a 67 convertible sedan. Uh, so those are all the cars that I wanted when I was younger, but couldn't afford. Sure. So I think, and the but the paradox of it is, uh, ten or fifteen years from now, what are those guys going to look back on and say? Geez, I wish I could get a, <laughs> a twenty ten Civic. Well, that's the thing. You know, you, I started to see it a little bit recently in the in the first gen Acura. Acura Legend, I think it is, or that you know, like the it was like their kind of sporty car. But what's interesting is, is as quote unquote cool as those cars were, there's it. I, I don't know if it's the same. You yeah, know what I mean? I, I, I don't think that it could be because you know, you know, they all kind of look alike, and and you know, Volkswagens. I mean, back when I was a back when I was getting into them initially, they were everywhere. Yeah, you see them everywhere driving up and down the streets, especially in Southern California, and the bikini girls. I mean, we used to get we used to get uh, uh, hate mail at, at trends for the girls and for for the bikini stuff. And, and I want to talk. I want to talk about that specifically. The 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 dynamic of the, the when did that change? When there was like bikini girls in the magazine, and then all of a sudden you see it fade out because at one point. You were telling me earlier about magazines. It was almost like a prerequisite for the magazine. It was. It was for for trends at least. It was that is what the cover should be. Uh, it had to have a girl on it, so we had to go find one. But um, uh, I mean, I I don't know what your your level of censorship is on your podcast, <laughs> but I, I could I could tell you verbatim. I still remember a particular letter that we got at trends because it was so harsh. Uh, that I, I remember it to this day. <laughs> and what is your level of, of uh, well, we listen, it, 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 it's it's a family show, I can edit it or I can always put it out as an explicit, doesn't matter, but go ahead, just okay. America, uh, to give, <laughs> yeah, to give, you, to give you the idea of how how harsh that some of the letters were. I mean, some of them were, uh, you know. Why do you always have the girls on the cover? And we would explain, well, we live in Southern California. This is Southern California. Uh, and you go to the beach and you'll see thousands of them like that. So it, it isn't out of the norm. It might be in Iowa or, 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 or Michigan or something. Sure. But but in Southern California, that's this is what's going on. But one of the one of the letters was uh, it was quick and simple. It said, keep the behind the cars. <laughs> <laughs> so you'd get and so and this is in the 80s right this is before yes. the cancel culture and so oh sure yeah. but at this time it's run by tom mcmullen right and he and his whole thing how he got into magazines was from the motorcycle catalogs which had plenty of topless girls in them right right but you know tom was a different guy he he uh oh boy lots of stories uh uh, at that time, the company was not really, although his name was at the top, uh, he wasn't really running it because uh, he had smartly brought in a guy named Ken Yee, who uh, was a bean counter at Peterson at one point. Uh -huh. But he, he brought him in, and uh, whenever Tom needed more money to go buy a Ferrari or go do something, he would sell a little bit more of the company to Ken. And Ken ended up with uh, – uh, 
a 60% or whatever it was, uh, uh, ownership. Uh, and Tom wasn't really around much. He, he would be in his office. He had a big office. And this is back uh, when we were on La Palma, uh, which is the same time frame when I was working at Trends. Um, and <laughs> there would be there was a, a long hallway uh, on each side of the building. And at the end of one of the hallways was where Tom would keep his real cougars. Uh, uh, they, that room uh, was the cougar room and he he had a lot of live exotic animals uh, through his time because he was rich and he had absolutely no uh, control <laughs> and he, he was Joe Exotic before there was a Joe Exotic oh by far by far and uh, so eventually after the after the cats had left because I think one of them scratched one of the one of the girls in the in the uh, secretary pool uh, so the, the cats went away, but, uh, that office that the cats used to stay in ended up being the VW trends office. And that's the <laughs> office that, uh, da that Dan and I shared. And if, and Dan's desk, uh, pointed down the hallway so you could see all the way down to the front of the building and mine was off to the side. So when Tom McMullen would be wandering around, uh, it was always dangerous because one, he, he used to come in. Uh, and stay long enough at work until the UPS van showed up that would deliver uh, parts to the magazines for review or for building a project car or whatever. And he'd go through and figure out what he wanted and take it. So um, so if Tom was walking down the hallway towards trends, Dan would get very serious very quick. Look at his look at his desktop. Uh, I shouldn't say desktop. I mean, hit the top of his desk because uh -huh. we were still all using the typewriters at the time. Right. Uh, but he'd say, Tom's coming, Tom's coming, Tom's coming down the hall. And, and uh, we'd, you know, we'd straighten up and he'd come in and he, he would either say stuff like, you know, I was thinking about putting uh, twin V8s in a VW bus. Would you be interested in doing an article about that? And Dan and I would look at each other and uh, no, there's no possible way that we would want to do that. Right. But we couldn't we couldn't tell him that. Um, but, uh, you know, we tell him that, you know, the hot tip would probably be, be to put it in the back of a pickup truck and he should go talk to trucking magazine, <laughs> send him and, down and, the road yeah, and send him down the road. So we wouldn't have to deal with him. So, um, Tom didn't have a lot to say or do, uh, with regular production. It was all Ken, Ken, Ken controlled everything. Oh, really? Yeah. And in, in those years, uh, in the earlier years, yeah, uh, when it was AWE Choppers and when he first got the magazine business started and all that kind of stuff, yeah, that was that was Tom. But by the time Tom got uh, a fair amount of money, I, I walked into his office one time and there were blueprints that were spread out over his big table. And I was looking at it and I thought, oh, we're going to we're going to buy a hotel. We're going to buy. He's looking at some property that that incorporates a hotel. Uh huh. And it turned out to be his house <laughs> that he was designing, and he had the blueprints out for his house that ended up being built in Buena Vista, uh, Colorado. Now, let me ask you this question. When you started working at Trends, did you know how how he was, how uh, Tom McMullen no. was when you started there? And what no, was your I, first I, experience of like realizing <laughs> where you started working? I, I learned really quick because uh, the, the the warning was out. I mean, and, and in this time frame, uh, people, uh, I was going to say people with money could do whatever they wanted, uh, which is probably still the case. <laughs> but 
uh, th- there were no consequences whatsoever. So uh, getting involved with Tom, you had to be incredibly cautious. Um, I got to know him through the years, and I didn't treat you – know, Tom liked to stick people. Right. And, and if, and if, and if you jumped when he stuck you, then he would continue to do it because he enjoyed it. But if you didn't jump when he stuck you, then you could have a normal conversation with him. And that's the way I was with him. It was kind of his vetting, his vetting process. See if you're like, if you're cool enough where he's not going to constantly harangue you, then, you know, right. It was, it was a deal. I mean, towards the end of Tom's life, because he died in a plane crash with his wife and his dog and, uh, the, the, in in a plane crash that he, in a plane that he was piloting. Um, but towards the end of his life, he'd come into my office and sit down in a chair and we'd talk and, and, you know, he was kind of just kind of exhausted with life. But I, I'd heard so many stories about him through the years. He was way larger than life in, in, in the way that he approached absolutely everything, but, but zero rules, zero rules. Yeah. They didn't apply. <laughs> the rules didn't apply to him. Yeah, it was he was going to do whatever, you know, in the early days, uh, there's a uh, there's still a a, a very well-known uh, hot rod car club called the L.A. Roadsters. And uh, Tom was a member. Uh, he he had an iconic car that was on the cover, the April 64 cover of uh, of Hot Rod. And that's that's the flamed the flamed hot yes. rod. Yeah, the flamed flame 32 Roadster. Everybody uh, knows that everybody should know because it's iconic. And that was Tom's car. And, you know, he, Peter Porras told me one day uh, when he was a child in his dad's car, they were up in L.A. and they stopped at a traffic light and Tom pulled up across the street from him in that car. And it, he said it was like an alien ship had landed. I mean, nobody, <laughs> nobody had done anything like that. It was so over the top, a, a blown big block, 32 Roadster with flames. That was it was it was that that was Tom's personality in a nutshell. So when he was with L.A. Roasters, there was a time when they were all supposed to go to some event and Tom decided not to go. And so everybody went. And when one of the guys came back to his house, uh, Tom was in his garage stealing the blower off of his motor. <laughs> so, I mean, there are so many, so many, so many stories uh, about about Tom and Tom was but, kind of a t- self self-made guy, right? Oh, sure. Yeah. He, he the, the, the weird part about it was that, that he, he was able to identify a couple of, of things through time where if he uh, made something for somebody or did something for somebody and somebody bought it, then he continued on doing it. He was, I mean, he, he was an electrician. Uh, I mean, automotive electrician early on, mm-hmm. but, uh, he got into the motorcycle craze in the in the '60s, which was a totally different deal than it is today. I mean, '60s bikers were freaking serious people. Right. So uh, he ended up uh, selling, uh, finding that people would buy a lot of parts, uh, uh, chopper parts, and he developed these through a company called AWE that he owned. Uh, uh, forks for choppers mm-hmm. uh the, the really long ones like f- for uh uh springers and all that stuff and the twisted choppers mm-hmm. twisted right, right. And, and and sissy bars and all that stuff mm-hmm. so he started making all that stuff and then then he started putting uh naked girls in the in the middle of the magazine and then uh 
uh, he found out that uh, people wanted to uh, have have something else besides a, a parts book, and he started the uh, the motorcycle books. And that was a whole division before he even got into the magazine. I mean, the automotive side of things. So he was successful uh, despite himself. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> for for decades, decades. Yeah, that's a. It's it's. I I think at some point I really I I I may do a podcast with multiple people sharing just stories about what took place at the McMullen Publishing. Uh, offices because I just hear so many crazy things or just stories about him as because like you said he's larger than life and this guy was just crazy but you know because of what he did we all had something that spurred our inspiration our motivation because of a vehicle that he put together of the magazines and the evolution of it I think it's a fascinating story as well as you know it's it's like your well, classic it was lucky that that he did hire Ken to because Ken made him money. Right. Because if Tom would have kept it, he would have screwed it into the ground. Sure. So so he, he was smart enough to, to bring Ken in. And uh, I mean, I was there when uh, Ken passed away. He, he died on the golf course. And typically you have uh, business partners uh, will have in their will that the other person gets the other half of the business. Right. And so he, even though Ken had uh, – most of the ownership of the company uh, when he died, Ken or uh, Tom thought, Oh, here's my opportunity to get back in and to uh, uh, take over the company because now I'm going to get the other half. Well, Ken never put that into his will. So it ended up going to his wife who was a very smart woman and was a, uh, a corporate vice president with bank of America and, and, had like 11 or 13 branches under her. She was real, really smart, Christina. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and she came in and just, uh, put Tom in his place because he didn't, he didn't have a say in it. And she ended up, she was the one that ended up, uh, selling the businesses and, and starting that ball rolling where the, the company was bought and sold for many years after that. Right. Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, it's it, it's it's definitely a wild story. It deserves to be told, um, and and I think I'd love to at one point put all that together. But getting back to your story, sure. as being a photographer and and shooting cars and you know the vast stuff that you've done, what are some of your most memorable photo shoots or covers cover shots that you've done? Wow. Well. Um, there are there are a few with the uh, VW trends that really stand out. Mm -hmm. uh, there's uh, and they seem, they seem to be um, popular in a lot of people's minds. Uh, there was one with uh, Tammy Carrera, uh, who I still talk to, uh -huh. uh, uh, washing a car in Bob Clark's driveway uh, with uh, Dan Ledbetter on the hose. Yeah. <laughs> That, that particular VW Trends cover is probably one of the more well-known ones. But in the background, that yellow sedan of, uh, that's behind the car that they're washing is Dan's car. And behind Dan is my uh, 65 convertible bug, which was used in a lot of tech stories and magazine stuff. So that was a, that was a rather quick uh, uh, early afternoon photo shoot up in Diamond Bar uh, in Bob Clark's driveway. 
because we didn't have any place else to shoot it. <laughs> sure, sure. And so, and and as far as uh, some of the other more memorable cars or people that you've met while shooting, uh, shooting some of these, oh, some of well, these covers. I, well, and not not so, not so much maybe the covers, but there were a lot of. Uh, I mean, I was very lucky to to know the uh, Lowrys uh, and. Uh, Dean Lowry and, and Gene Berg and uh, a, a lot of the early uh, icons of, of the industry. I was really happy about you know running into them. There's one cover. I, I think I sent you a picture of a, a girl leaning on a, a black uh, and flamed bug. Yeah. Her name's uh, Michelle Plaisance. Um, she was a very nice girl. The car is uh, it was uh, Danny Martinez's car. Danny's dad was Al Martinez of the famed uh, Al Martinez body and paint oh, shop, yeah. and as well as uh, uh, the jamborees that were held down uh, Costa Mesa, VW jamborees, which were, um, you know, I mean, oh, yeah. those 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 events are the description of VW trends and the time frame and the Bikini Girls. It's that uh, everything was all intertwined with that so yeah it was, um, it was such it was such a such a such a uh, a pinnacle of time because everything it was like you'd go to a show you'd see three four five new cars you've never seen before and everyone was more outrageous or cool than the next because it was polished or plated or or the colors they were doing i mean it was just such a it's crazy it was such a vibrant time in volkswagens yeah. And, yeah, well, it was it was in fashion. It was with uh, music videos and all that kind of stuff. So, um, it, having a pink car on the cover uh, wasn't out of the ordinary, or or any of the colors that you would find in Eminem. <laughs> well, and I think some of it even was some of it would even influence because it was just part of the culture at that time. You know, Swatch watches, the '80s, all the stuff, fuchsia, and all these crazy colors. But even Porsche at that time in the late 80s had come I remember Porsche had a commercial where it had a, they had a bunch of old german guys in a in a gray warehouse and then one guy t- pulls out some lipstick and the guy dumps a bucket of crazy color paint and they just start going nuts and then it shows you all the new Porsche colors where they had like a a magenta colored Porsche and some you know some well, of these well, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, just, just just some of these crazy things. And I don't know if, if the car scene, if the aftermarket scene influenced that or if it was all simultaneous, you know? No, no, it d- didn't. It, what what happens is, and I learned this through uh, the uh, hot rod industry because I, uh, for decades I'd gone back to Detroit for the Autorama that happens every year back there. And uh, what would happen is there, the designers from the big three would come over and visit the hot rod show and see what's going on. Right. And that's where, that's where, uh, uh, when door handles disappeared off of cars, it was because the hot rodders were already shaving them. Right. And nobody liked the look of a door handle. So the designers are like, let's get rid of the door handle look. Yeah. 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 So, so there was a lot of, there was a lot of influence from the hot rods, certainly the colors. I remember back in the day, back, uh, visiting Stan Betts, who was a legendary paint mixer, uh, that uh, worked in Orange off of uh, Catella Avenue, and I, he'd work in the alleyway behind his uh, shop. And I went over one day and looked down into this can, and it looked like uh, it was purple with silver la- live larvae in it, <laughs> twisting around in it. 
And I looked at it and I stared at it and I kept looking at it because it kept moving and it wasn't, there was no reason for it to be moving. And it was uh, among some of the first pearls that, that, uh, uh, that he did, but he not only supplied hot rod people with it, uh, but uh, the big three came to him to say, Hey, what's going to be the next color? And, and purple was not one of them up until the time that he mixed it. Wow. So, uh, the hot rod influence or anybody, and I, I look at the stuff that we were doing, the VWs, and that is hot rodding. That is sure. taking, something, taking something and modifying it, making it go faster, making it look better. That's hot rodding. And so all, all the stuff that goes on there uh, was stuff that was carried <laughs> through to the big three. Well, I look and, at like, and, ended, and ended up in your driveway. I, well, what's funny is I look at like, well, yeah, because you're you're talking the '90s. Teal was the hottest color. I mean, all these cars were, were factory colors, and even in in the '93 typh- typhoon and cyclone uh, typhoons and cyclones. Well, just, not the cyclones, but just the typhoons in '93, the last production year, they had a garnet red, a teal. And a uh, like a um, a magenta color that were you know just limited colors and a royal blue and normally the cyclones and typhoons were all black and it, I mean it influenced to that point where even any special edition cars they did they did in these wild eighties colors and and I and I started laughing right now because I started thinking like it's funny because us as being in our you know, 40s and 50s you know we look back at, at, at and some of my buddies are in their 60s and you look back at you look at like the rockabilly scene, right? And th- this is a whole group of people that have committed their entire lives to the rockabilly lifestyle, right? So they wear, you know, cuff pants, t-shirts, they drive old cars, like everything in their house is like mid-century modern, right. all that type <laughs> of stuff. And I think yeah. to myself, will there ever be a time in the future where kids are wearing peg leg pants, you know, uh, t-shirts, Maui and Sun stuff, like all that stuff becomes like the sought after. You go in their house, they got cassette decks and boom boxes, and it's just like it would be the craziest thing if you saw at some point 50 years down the road where people just started to really embrace or try to go back to that time of the 80s, you know, because it was so it, – it was for us as being the youth at that time, it was some of the greatest times. Oh, Sure. I mean, with and being in Southern California with uh, like uh, K Rock, uh, oh yeah, Hero K- bringing music in from England that nobody had ever heard before. I mean that 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 whole time frame in the in the late eighties for the magazines, for the for the cars, for the girls, for the music, it it was it was uh, a lot of fun. There's no reason why you wouldn't want to look back on some of that stuff, other than the haircuts, and and. Um, Talking about some of that, we talked we, we talked a little bit about people that didn't like the the magazines with the girls in them. We never finished that topic a little bit. At what point do, do you remember the time when? Because did Street Rodders? Because I'm not a big Street Rodder magazine guy. Did Street Rodder have girls on the cover? And then oh, they, sure. and then they went to like okay, times are changing, guys. We're pulling it back from the girls. Yeah, I, I remember doing because uh, I did I did uh, between the two magazines and some of the other stuff I've done. I've, probably photographed uh, more, more than 350 magazine covers. So uh, I was right at the forefront of you know, having to do that. And I distinctly remember that one of the covers that I'd done for Street Rotter was a, uh, a 37 coupe, three-window coupe, uh, doing a, a, a burnout at 
drag strip. And that was, that was, uh, among the last, uh, or was the first time that a girl wasn't on the cover. But like I said, it was, it was, it was an edict from, uh, the company saying, you know, they, they had to have a girl on it. So that's what we produced. But, um, I think my cover uh, of my car, my 29, which was the August 1999 cover of Street Rotter. Mm-hmm. That, that was, I, because I'd grown up with, uh, hoppy W's and trends and, and, uh, photographing girls. I wanted a girl on cover with my car, but I think that was, I think that was the very last one. And did, was there a discussion? Was it a conversation in corporate or at the magazine? Like, Hey guys, we you know, our, our readership's diversifying and we need to pull this back and make sure it's a magazine for everybody. I mean, how, how does this go down or how do you guys see it as, as the well, artist? We, we had, a, you know, I already told you about the dark side uh, being the uh, advertising staff, but there were a couple of uh, guys who were kind of sort of Christian, I guess, uh-huh. uh, that were uh, in, involved in the magazine advertising wise. And, and it was part of their uh, push uh, to push the girls off the covers. Interesting. You know, how, you know, we'd get letters saying, you know, how can I have this magazine on my coffee table? Right. Because of the rules, you know. Right. So it's and and to us it was commonplace. So, you know, different different people. But you know, the the uh, I, I I don't think that it was particularly uh, it was PC before there was a phrase for being PC. Sure, it was just kind of an and it was I and maybe it's the more commercialization of the magazine. You know, like we're trying to get a bigger a bigger. Uh, a bigger, a bigger reach. And we don't want to f- have people feel like this is not their magazine, and maybe well, this that, is not what we're selling. Well, that that happened with the uh, with Street Rotter as well, because some of the advertisers uh, were uh, Christian types, right? <clears throat> and and they basically said, "Well, we won't advertise if that's what's on the cover." Interesting. So, so again, commerce kind of dictates what what we do on on any level once it becomes commercialized. Now. With this being your background for so long and all of these, you know, the, these these things that have taken place in regards to the media marketing, which it's a business, it's a, it's a media marketing business, but we see it, the enthusiast sees it as a resource to get ideas, inspiration, or to find or to connect with the scene. How do you see the future of print media succeeding in, in current you know, in, in the current world that we're in right now. Well, it's, it's funny because, you know, you and I were talking just moments ago about having, uh, uh, different aspects from our past, uh, possibly becoming, uh, in the future, mm-hmm. uh, like, like the trick thing to have that, you know, the stuff that we would throw away today is stuff that, uh, will become collectible and maybe magazines in print form will always have some type of, uh, uh, home, uh, I, whether it's, whether it's, uh, uh, I mean, Lowrider magazine, uh, which is one of the magazines that we owned at one point, mm-hmm. uh, at one point was, uh, 800,000 issues a, uh, a month. A subscri- subscribers. Yeah. And, and it was, but it, it was, I, I don't, I know that people, uh, like to have magazines come in the mail and, 
and they open them up and they look at them. I don't know a lot of people my age uh, that will sit down and flip through pages on their computer screen. It's right. just it's just not in them to do that. Yeah, the, and I've tried that. You know, a few years back, there was a magazine I was subscribing to out of out of Europe, and and they had oh, not, total nine eleven, and it was like, hey, check out this access code and go online and look at it, and and like you go online and it has like a flip feel to it where it turns the pages, but it's it's not it's not the same. You know what I mean? As 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 something something physical that you can you know have or i don't know i don't maybe it's just the nostalgia or something that i that i feel but it, it, now we've gotten to the point because i've caught myself and i don't know if you've done this at all but i've caught myself holding a magazine and then reaching down to the page and trying to zoom in with my two fingers <laughs> and, no, no, and, i haven't i haven't done that but i i remember being in one of my volkswagens running up on to a a dip in the road and i'd yank on the steering wheel like i was on my bmx bike because i thought that it was gonna right all of a end up. yeah but <laughs> but no no i haven't done that with the uh with the digital magazines it's well no i'm just know, talking about with a, with a print magazine because we've come so we've, we've become so accustomed to you know everything being so easy for us that you know if we want a picture if you want to find t today if you're researching something let's say you're making an article for a magazine you wanted to research something you can find a thousand pictures of what you want to research and if it's super rare you can find 10 of True. something that yeah, doesn't it's, exist it's, it's a great resource and magazines uh you know people we used to uh complain about the amount of advertising in a magazine and they don't they didn't really know what they were talking about um, a lot of times, uh, the people that complain about the advertisers aren't building cars, right? Because if you are, if you get some new, I, I just in the last week picked up a '67 sedan, <laughs> and, and as soon as I as soon as I have it, I'm going to break open the next issue of Hoppy W's and go through it and see what I need. Uh, so. Uh, it's a, it's an excellent resource that you could always go back to. You know, you you have a stack of them in your in your garage or whatever, and you can go through them again and again. Oh yeah, uh, so, and, and and you can search stuff out on the computer too. Yeah, but, some of my favorite things to do are to go go. You know, it's interesting. I, I started flipping back through the magazine not long ago, and uh, I I did a podcast a few weeks ago on Creighton Mueller's first chopped beetle that he chopped in 1955. And uh, as I was doing that, I, I was researching some things and, and I got turned on to it from Carpo, who's involved in the hot rod scene. And they're doing the, as this year's coming up, the I was show, involved in that too. Yeah. Showing the times that are changing. This year's Grand National Roadster show is going to feature the Volkswagen. And, and so, you know, he turned me on to that. I get the car. And then I just happened to be going through magazines for another podcast I was doing. And I run across a 93, you know, 1993 issue of Hot VWs that actually has Burley Burlisle, who I had on the podcast a few years ago. And, and, you know, there's a full layout here on Creighton Mueller's car. And Burley Burlisle supplied the stories and the pages for Hot VWs. But this car blindly went through the September 2012 issue of Hot VWs. No big stink about it, no big anything, but it's a pretty, pretty significant vehicle. 
you know, and and sometimes we get so used to some of these things that we're looking at it. We're, like you turn the page, you're like, yep, not into it, keep going. But I think, you know, I got a lot of feedback on the podcast about no one knew about this car. And so I I think now with with things like the podcast and we're able to hone down on some things and get some of this history down where maybe in the in the pages of this it just kind of goes through and maybe in 2012 people weren't as nostalgic i don't know i mean uh, it it it's interesting how sometimes history just passes us by when it's right there and we can and we can really digest some things because what i've been doing with the magazines is trying to figure out certain things you know who was the first guy to narrow a beam? You know what I mean? Because right. a lot of people were doing it drag racing wise, those JT aluminum beams, things like that. They were they were real easy. There was no shocks. They were narrowing a little bit. <clears throat> but comes to the street, I remember in 1992, you know, when they first came out with disc brakes for the bug, it was like it added a half inch to the track width on each side. And then I wanted to run wide tires, so it made it even more difficult. And then once they started narrowing the beam, it re-revolutionized front suspension in Volkswagens. And the crazy part is it's such a simple concept to understand, but nobody ever thought of it that way. Yeah. Well, one of the guys that uh, we hung out with uh, at Autohaus in the early days uh, is uh, Tiger from A1 Muffler. Are you aware of him, A1 Performance? I am, yeah. Now, I don't know his history. Well, uh, Tiger was one of the guys in this little tight little group that I'm talking about uh-huh. for that. Uh, uh, I mean, we used to, um, there was a, a crew spot up in Anaheim called uh, Camelot. It was a, a golf course. It's still there. A miniature golf course. It's yeah. outside the 91 freeway. Well, that was the, that was the spot for some dumb reason, one reason or another that everybody used to gather at, but that's where, that's where Tiger, uh, uh, his legend was born because of that 67 that he still owns uh that he was he was like john milner in in american graffiti he was the fastest guy in the valley yeah so um a lot of a lot of uh drag racing came out of um uh out of those streets there around uh camelot uh and and tiger and dave mason both both those guys had the fastest cars around and but with tiger uh he was able to develop uh, a whole line, uh, create a business and a whole line of um, performance muffler systems that is still going really strong today. Yeah. So. No, I think I, and I think I definitely want to get him on the podcast because it's one of those things. I've been in the scene for a long time. I know the mufflers he makes. I know all the stuff, but I don't know his history to that degree, which I think is is a real cool history to to, to snapshot what was happening back then on the streets, um, what was what the scene was like back then. Because it's it's funny, you and I are talking, and as we're talking, I got a phone call from a buddy of mine here in town, Adam Wick. Well, Adam Wick, was he had that drag car, Wicked, that was out in the early 90s. Well, he was a Orange County kid, and he was a little bit, you guys might have been a high school class or two above him, but he I remember him telling me a story about, yeah, man, I remember one time. <laughs> That's a funny story. He says, yeah, man, that guy, Bill Schwimmer, man, not cool, man. I remember one time I was going to Camelot, and I was in my mom's station wagon, and I got a little close to his car parking. He's like, hey, man, why, 
watch the car. But I can totally see the story taking place in my head because you're sure. you're a high school kid and you got this cool car and here comes some noob pulling in his mom's station wagon. And it's so funny because he's gone on to, you know, he's real big in the off-road race engine building and all that stuff. But his roots started out just being a kid wanted a fast street car and then it went to him drag racing and then evolved into him building you know i mean hundreds if not a few thousand off-road engines over the past 15 20 years but there's so many of these stories where everyone's history well, overlaps well one of them another guy that that hung out in that same time frame at camelot and stuff and did street racing was Corey mcclathan yeah and yeah. he I mean, he was just one of the guys that had a fast car, and went so, on to and went on to to go do a substantial bit in racing. You know, yeah, real NHRA uh, racing, not just uh, Volkswagen stuff. So, yeah, he he took it and ran with it really fast. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it, it's but you know with 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 Tiger, there was a story one time uh, about being up at Camelot and. What it was was uh, it was a, a a street that uh, bent left over in front of the uh, miniature golf place. So it was just a two lane road, uh, ended in a cul de sac that you had to turn around and then drive back. And that was the cruise spot, just back and forth, back and forth. Well, with Tiger one time, somebody in a Camaro, whatever it was, uh, pulled up, uh, you know, driver's door to driver's door, facing you know opposite ways, and he said, "Oh, I, I hear you have a fast car and blah blah blah, whatever, want to race." Tiger says, sure. And he says, okay, I'll meet you up here on Miller. And he says, uh, you go ahead. I'll catch up. And, and the guy goes, what? He says, go ahead. I'll, 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 I'll catch up. And so the guy takes off and Tiger uh, pulls a Yui in the street and then chases him down and, and beats him <laughs> after, after facing the wrong way initially. So, um, there were there were lots of fun little stories. I was with Gasky one time at my house working on a car. Some guys, just pair of guys, pulled up in a and and Glenn had come over, and he was in the slippers, and uh, and <laughs> he just saw my garage door open, so he stopped. And it was one of his fast cars. He always had a fast car. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, some guys, a uh, pair of guys, pulled up in an Austin Healey. Oh, I hear you've got a fast car and Volkswagens aren't fast and blah, 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 all this kind of shit. And uh, Glenn was always, you know, a pretty low-key guy. And the guys just mouth off and then they leave. And he, he stopped, Glenn stops for a second and he looks and then he looks up at me and goes, well, you want to go? I go, yeah. So I <laughs> jump in the car and we chase the guys up Tustin and then we pull up to a stoplight on uh, Taft and I, I had a hundred dollar bill in my pocket. And I put it up on the windshield and I'm pointing it at the guys, and they're all what, what? And the light turns green, and Glenn plays with them in the first couple of gears, and then stuffs it in, uh, into third, and just yanks away from him, just pulls away from him, and <laughs> just people didn't understand. It. I mean, that was the joke because people would say, you know, well, what size motor do you have, and we don't say, you know, we hold our hands out about about three feet apart from each other. And we go, I don't know. It's about this big. Right. <laughs> no, that's, I mean, the, the, you know, and, and it's crazy because those are the stories that like legends are born from, you know, and it's just such a good time when everyone's in there. I mean, you think about it, a bunch of 18 year olds with fast street cars out there and uh, no airbags, hardly oh. any seat belts. You know what I mean? 135 tires. 
And, uh, you know, a lot of you guys are pretty lucky. <laughs> oh, sure. Yeah. Uh, my 68 bug. Uh, the red, pose- is that the red one you sent me a picture of? Uh, yeah. With the eight spokes. Uh-huh. That one, uh, that one had a, uh, a fairly nice motor in it. Not, not huge, uh, but, uh, uh, pretty good heads on it. And I could pull the wheels off the ground the first two gears. And it was, it was a scary car for me, but, but like, uh, Mason, Dave Mason's mm-hmm. car. I mean, what did it, it ran at, uh, I don't want to misquote the speed or the times at, uh, at Carlsbad, but it was this full steel bodied street car that was, oh, Jesus, I want to say in the high tens, low 11s. Wow. And, and, you know, Tiger was out there. Glenn was out there. There were a lot of people that had exceptionally fast cars. Yeah. It's just, it's just the way it was. Yeah. I mean, listen, and a lot of these guys started on their own because, you know, like I was talking with Adam and he's been building engines and I'm like, well, what got you into building engines? He's like, well, I would go to all the dudes that knew what they were doing. And then I thought, well, I can just do this myself, you know? And it's, it's interesting how the, the resourcefulness of the VW owner, you know, and I don't know, did you see much of that? What, like, what, what do you think is the difference? I mean, from your standpoint, cause I know there are some hot rod guys that started with Volkswagens, True. Um, but for the most part, and I think they're a different kind of guy than like your, your mega build car hot rodder, you know? I mean, do you see the difference of like, uh, cause there are some guys, some of the guys that build Volkswagens, they build Volkswagen because lack of options and they're just resourceful and, and that's what they want to do, you know, and, and that's the car, that's the platform they start with because it's what they can afford. Well, that's, that's the key there. And, and back in the day, back in the eighties, uh, a 60 zero Volkswagen, regardless of what it was. I mean, I can't believe how many Porsches I passed up with three fifty sixes and stuff. <laughs> you know, I, I bought my, I bought my split window for $500. So it's, having access to uh, cheap vehicles uh, and it's always been fair. I mean, unless you go nuts, it's always been uh, fairly easy to build a, a VW. Um, But, you know, back then it was, I I, I can't believe all the, all those cool stuff that we passed on, but I I do have a friend, a hot rod buddy. He's uh, uh, Kenny Welsh up in uh, Idaho that, uh, uh, over the years, he's owned 400 buses. Oh wow! But he he is a major hot rod builder, and he always and drag racer, and he he's uh, always had a always had a thing for Volkswagens. Still does. No, that's I mean I, I think there's so many people that that start that way, and I mean even you, you, you know, a lot of people you've gone so far out of the VW realm in regards to with your start being Volkswagens, but that start with the hobby of photography has gotten you the, what is the furthest you've gone out starting from this hobby, getting into photography and automotive? What is the furthest where you were fine? You were at some event or something and you thought, wow, just being a VW guy and wanting a job taking pictures of Volkswagens got me here. Well, the, the coolest thing, and I, I wasn't able to write about it, um, was, uh, I, I mean, I wrote a, a portion of it. I couldn't write the whole story. Was uh, I, through Pete Shapouris from SoCal Speed Shop, mm-hmm. uh, got me an interview with Billy Gibbons from ZZ Top. And as it turned out, uh, 
you know, Billy is, I, I've known him for many years, uh, but he has a persona. He has a couple different personas. And one of them is the one that is kind of the show business kind of thing. And then there's just Billy. And when I first met him, he had the persona thing. And I kept trying to dig because I wanted to find out uh, his history with hot rods and, and talk about it stuff. And I don't know that there were a lot of people that had ever really talked to him in that way to um, uh, that wasn't really interested in the show business side of things. Right. So, so we, we uh, I ended up staying with him and Pete on tour with him for a week and rode on his bus. And this is all stuff that I wasn't able to write about or talk about. Uh, because no other journalist had ever had that kind of access to him. And I sat on the stage uh, behind his uh, guitars while he played concerts in San Jose. Uh, the tour bus broke down, and they had to pile everybody into my rental car to get people to the concert. Um, on the off days, we went to uh, vintage record stores and vintage guitar stores. And to walk into a vintage guitar store with Billy Evans <laughs> yeah, me and my buddy, he's kind of a big deal. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's, exactly. That's, hey, I don't care who you are. That's a power move. When you can walk in chumming up with Billy Gibbons, it's kind of a power move to go to like a guitar center or something like that. You know what I mean? Yeah, we went to a, real, <laughs> a place called Real Guitars in, in South San Francisco. And because there was some weird little part that uh, Billy was aware of uh, that they, these guys had. And it was like a little preamp that you put in the inside the guitar that you couldn't see anything, but you throw a switch and then all of a sudden you'd have this uh, extra power, uh, this sound uh, coming out of the guitar and you wouldn't know where it's coming from, which is totally what Billy is totally into. And um, so, so I was able to be able to get an interview from him eventually because he eventually warmed up to me and was able to talk about stuff. And I asked him, you know, what's, you know, what was your, what was your first car? And he said a limousine and because it was true because he, he had started uh, moving sidewalks and started uh, then ZZ Top right out of high school. Oh, really? Yeah. So uh, <laughs> but that was his that was his answer to my question. What was your first car? A limousine. So he's like so he went right from high school to to to, to start him right away. Huh? And yeah, pretty humble dude. Yeah. Yeah. He he's uh, he's. He is an incredibly smart person. Are you aware of uh, Mensa? Uh-huh. Uh, from what I understand, both uh, Billy and his uh, sister were admitted to Mensa when they were like 14 or 15 years old. Wow. Uh, and one of the we went into uh, vintage bookstores on part of this trip when we went to the guitar stores and all these things. We went to a vintage bookstore and and uh, he pulled up the stack of know, six or seven books and set them on the counter to buy. And I looked at all the titles, and all the titles were really varied, very different. And but you know, when he's on the road, after doing it for fifty years, sixty years, sure, and reading everything, he just he just absorbs stuff. He has he's a he has his business side, which everybody knows, and uh, he's learned a lot through the years. He's a really really smart guy. Man, I, I had to try to nail him down for a podcast just to chat about his Volkswagen and then his car hobby, man, because I'd love to. Yeah. He's had he's had a couple. I I, I photographed a couple of Volkswagens, but he's uh, I photographed a couple of his cars, uh, both in the studio and uh, up at his house. 
So I, I got to shoot him a few times. I, I mean, some of my friends are really good friends with him. And, you know, they, they hang out all the time type of thing. I, I, I'm not that kind of friend. I, I know him. Don't worry. I mean, I'll, dro- I'll drop your name. Like, yeah, Eric said I could <laughs> swing by because they, they, the ZZ Top, Top took up a residency here in Las Vegas. Right, right. So, and I happen to know where his new house is because I was, as a contractor in my day job, we're doing work at the house directly across the street from his house. So I was one day, if I had my Riviera running, I was to drive that to the job site to do a quote-unquote inspection. I'm sure that'd draw him out of the house. <laughs> it, it may. He has he has a lot of houses. It's, it's funny because I run into people that know him for many, many years, and you'll say one thing, and they'll, they'll look at you like, really? It, it's But it's... Uh, because people that have known him for a really long time, he's really diversified in what he knows about and what he does and what he collects and what he likes. And, yeah. and uh, even people that know him pretty well don't know every aspect of him. He's a, uh, he's a really interesting guy. Anyway, so that, that week was like one of the best weeks I ever had in my life uh, was hanging out with him uh, with uh, regards to stuff that happened with the Volkswagens. And he's a, and he's a hardcore uh, car enthusiast, like big time into cars. I mean, that dude's got a pretty massive collection, I think. Uh, he has a pretty good collection. I mean, one the, one of the most iconic cars was Cadzilla, which is uh, was designed uh, back in the eighties. He designed it on a napkin, and it uh, today is still one of the most iconic. Uh, custom rods ever built no and i remember you know talking about cadzilla i not i know they made a motorcycle to match it called hogzilla two of them and i thought one one for dusty and one and and that was pete chaparis and bob bowder built those motorcycles and uh uh, they built them in like 20 days or 19 days or something yeah and and, and i'm trying to think for some reason i'm thinking uh, I I don't know why, and I may be mistaken, but I'm pretty sure I'm not. I thought there was a, a Bugzilla that was built to imitate that, but I could be I could be no, I could be no, out in left field. No, that that car uh, was a car that uh, uh, it was a convertible that ended up in VW Trans uh, back in the '80s. Yeah, pearl and, necklace. Um, might've been because he used pearl necklace on a couple of his cars. In fact, I photographed him on the cover of street rotter with, uh, a bunch of guitar necks and stuff laying on the ground. I saw that. Yeah. You sent me that cover with the guitar necks. Well, well, that, that car was also called pearl necklace. Oh, was it? Yeah. There's an interesting story about those guitar necks. If you want to hear it. (laughs) Yeah. That's what I was, I was curious where all the guitar necks came from. Well, at the time, uh, I, I lived in uh, Corona and California, which is where, uh, Fender, uh, musical instruments is, is also and uh i had called up fender and said i'm doing a photo shoot and i need uh guitar necks uh strewn about the ground for this uh photo shoot and at the time uh fender custom wasn't what fender custom is now fender custom now is uh the mecca for uh creative uh guitar building and uh, all of the major people who play Fender guitars go through Fender Custom to make have their guitars built for them. Right. And if, and if you walk in there, uh, they have rows of guitar necks on the walls. And you walk by and it says Ingway Malmsteen, Jeff Beck, uh, Bonnie Raitt, all these all these names on all these guitar necks because those are the profiles for the necks that these artists particularly like. Well, I called them up and I said, I need I need uh, 
they go, well, what we do with our seconds uh, when there's a blam or something, we just bandsaw them because we don't we don't want them out. I go, I, I understand that, but can you can you uh, keep them for maybe a couple of weeks worth of production, and then uh, when we get done with them, we'll give them back to you. And they said, okay. So they they showed up with uh, 60 guitar necks or something and about eight bodies, and uh, made me sign for them. And at the time, uh, they were either 400 or 600 dollars a piece. Oh wow. Uh, to, to guarantee that they would not be uh, used anywhere or anything. So, so I signed for him and, uh, and then we did the shoot with Billy and I had them all laid out on the ground and uh, the kid who had uh, delivered them had come back for him and Billy was talking to him and he, and Billy says, oh, you understand all these guitar necks aren't going back. And the kids all, oh, no, you don't understand. We uh, inventory them, and then we bandsaw them so that Billy says, uh, all these guitar necks aren't going back. So he, the kid wasn't going to argue with Billy. So the kid left uh, after having Billy uh, pinstripe one of the guitars for a NAM show. And then uh, Billy turns to me and says, well, pick yourself out one. So I picked out a, a telly body and a rosewood neck, and I sent it to his guitar builder, uh, uh, at the time, uh, uh, and uh, had him uh, assemble this guitar for me using one of those little weird little uh, preamps that uh, I'd seen buy up at that store up in South San Francisco. Oh wow, that's pretty cool. So that's yeah. very cool. Yeah. So did you? So they they all didn't go back, but they came back and picked all a bunch of those up out of the pile. Yeah. Yeah, and 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 Billy looked at him, and I asked him. And he said, "I can't find anything wrong with them. I mean, there might have been a, a small little bubble in the lacquer or something. I mean, they, they were, most of them were really nice. And so uh, he picked up a few, and I picked up the one uh, body and the one neck, and had a guitar built out of it. Wow, very cool, man. Well, that's listen. You you know we're gonna probably have to have, to have you on again because you got so many great stories, and I may want to just. <laughs> pinpoint some stuff and hone down on it. And I'm sure I'm going to see it at the Grand National Road Show. I'm assuming you're going to be there this uh, this next May coming up, right? Well, I, I don't know if you if you caught what I had said. Um, I was part of that crew that helped start that thing about the VWs because um, I, I not only have I've been involved with the Grand National Road Show for many years, uh, this past year I I um, ran the Sloniker Award uh, for the show. Oh, really? So uh, – and John Buck, who owns the show, uh, uh, he's a VW guy from way back as well. Yeah. And, and when we first initially thought about doing some sort of a, a room, like they, because their building nine is always a room of something. If it's not SCTA cars or 32 roasters or Woody's or drag cars or whatever it is, each year there's a theme. So this, this year was supposed to be the, uh, the VW. So I was involved with Carpo and, and Kevin Doyle and a couple of other people, uh, uh, Stefan, who I don't know if he knows, yeah. um, uh, on putting this, uh, the initial group of cars together and the idea on it. So, um, and we were trying to make it a, a an eighties, <clears throat> kind of an eighties thing also. And I gave John the idea, uh, to get, uh, Richard Blade from, KROQ. Oh, really? To, to come in and actually uh, 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 DJ the uh, DJ the room. Nice. So is that so, is Richard Blade going to be there? 
we've talked. I don't know if it got inked because it was supposed to be in January and got moved to May. I don't know. I don't know if it uh, how it turned out. But I, I talked to him, and it was weird. I mean, I'd never talked to Richard before. I'd photographed him a long time ago when he had introduced uh, Berlin at uh, Orange Coast College back in the eighties. <laughs> I was down there. I was down there photographing Berlin, and um, uh, but it's funny to hear him on the phone because he sounds exactly like you know you want him to. It's 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 absolutely hysterical. No, but um, but but he he does his uh, flashback weekends and and we wanted to have that in that room for uh, Grand National Roaster Show. I don't know if it's going to happen or not, but uh, I, I hope that it does. Yeah, let's hope. I mean that would be uh, that would be pretty awesome. I mean it's just it's just it's just completing the experience, you know, of the of the nostalgia and the history and and all that stuff. Yeah, so. well, you can't have, you can't have the '80s in Southern California and Volkswagen without catering too. Right. Yeah. No. I, I'm I'm for sure looking forward to it, man. I'm I'm pretty excited. You know, I, I picked up that red uh, chop top bug that was uh, covered trends twice, and it uh, and it was in uh, Hot VWs in '89. Um, but I actually just just picked that car up a little bit ago after doing one of my. Uh, podcast with somebody we started talking going down the road of 80s and i talked about this iconic car that just stuck in my in my head the whole time and the guy goes oh, you know that car is for sale and, I, and i'm not one to like i i'm known for my own cars you know what i mean and so i'm not one to like have somebody else's car but because of what this car kind of meant to me and that it had just been sitting in a garage for years and it's like that car deserves to be seen because that car inspired the heck out of me and then you know the chop i'm not even a chop top guy but it's such a subtle chop, and then the bonus to everything is it came with real BRMs on it, so you can't beat that. You oh know? my god! <laughs> so, yeah, that that car has been invited to the Roadster show, so I'll be there with that car uh, in uh, in May when the uh, when the shows happen. So I'm excited for that. I look forward to. I'm going to be set up in Buddy Hale's booth, and so I'd be more than happy. I'll probably be live streaming while we're there, so more than happy to swing by and we'll chat it up for a minute or two, and then. Uh, you know, look forward to seeing you there. Yeah, way cool, Bill. Well, cool. Well, hey, I appreciate the time you've taken for us. And like I said, I'm sure this won't be the only time you'll be on here. I'll be dragging you for some of the stuff that we go over and some of the some of the historical stuff, I'm sure. So Great. Sounds good. Hey, Eric, thanks for coming on, man. And where, where can people find you at? The, uh, your website, your Instagram, and all that good stuff. Well, the, the website, and it only is there to drive people to my Instagram. Uh, I don't do Twitter, but uh, the uh, webpage is ericgeisert.com, plain and simple. But uh, my Instagram is at egeisertphoto. So uh, that's how most uh, – that's because it's photo-related. That's where I think most people would want to find me. No, absolutely, man. And I, I definitely appreciate you taking the time to come on the podcast. Thank you for the invite. Yeah, no problem. Thank you. Well, I think you guys learned a lot on that podcast, especially about the evolution of some of the uh, magazines and how, uh, you know, the magazines influence the hobby and vice versa. I mean, there's a lot to be said, a lot going on, a lot of history and a lot of stuff we didn't even cover. And that was uh, a long stretch, a good podcast, great conversation. And I look forward to kicking more of those out for you guys. Now let's talk about some five-star reviews. Let's Talk Dubs is a must-listen. And he looks forward to each episode from SNS Cycle. Appreciate the five-star rating. And uh, Davies, our boy, has been on the podcast before. 
But get me to 250, guys. Let's get me to 250 this year for reviews on Apple Podcasts. Hit it up. Borrow your friend's phone. Whatever you got to do. Let's get some reviews on there, man, so all the VW people will find this podcast. Uh, Make sure you share it with a friend because we love when you share it with a friend. And support and get some merch for your homies that don't have it at letstalkdubs.com. Until next week, guys. Later. A Volkswagen is a nice station wagon to have.